You are listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. From 2015 for the 17th edition of the festival, this is John Gray in conversation with Carlo Gebler at Smock Alley Theatre. Enjoy. Um, good evening. Um, this, is, this is John Gray. Um, and he is a writer. Uh, that is to say, he's a person who makes purposeful arrangements of words. He lines them up in the right order, and he creates patterns and shapes which go into the psyche and lodge there and change us, which is the function of literature. Um, what he says, that which is carried into us by his words, is always interesting, and that is what we are going to be talking about. But I want to emphasize that he is a really successful maker of that artifact, the book, that wonderful piece of ancient technology that you upload into your head and that changes you forever. And to make a book, you have to understand structure, you have to be across your craft, um, you have to know what to include, more importantly, you have to know what to leave out, and John Gray has these capacities in abundance. And he's produced a wide number of books, Best known, probably, Straw Dogs, The Silence of Animals, The Immortalization Commission, and to that august role, we can now add his new book, The Soul of the Marionette, A Short Inquiry into Human Freedom. And we're going to get to the book in a minute, but I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask John a general question. Before I came here, I did some research, and I listened to a podcast in which... Mr. Gray was being interrogated by Will Self. And at the end, you came up, you came up with this very striking description of your practice. You, you, you talked about the spectacles which we all wear, and there being, all of us, and the way the spectacle gets smeared. And you said your function, if possible, was to wipe the lens with a bit of Kleenex and to allow the spectacle to work that bit better to allow us to see more clearly. Um, very Orwell-esque, as opposed to Orwellian. Orwell's good prose should be like a clean pane of glass, is in my mind when I said that. So my question is, general question, mm. what is it that we are not seeing? And what is it, in broad brush strokes, you are helping us to see with your dab of Kleenex? <laughs> very, very good question, very difficult to answer. Um, I will we'll answer it, though, as best I can. Uh, Carlo, um, I guess uh, something that came as a bit of a revelation to me many years ago was when I read Joseph Conrad in one of the introductions to uh, uh, one of his novellas, one of his books, and he said the, his aim in the, in, the, in, the in the book was to enable the reader to see. So it's like Orwell, who described, he said he wanted to write in a way so that his writing was like a window pane. You, you wouldn't see the words, or you wouldn't obsess about the words. You wouldn't see them as being terribly beautiful or, or whatever. You would just look through the words to, to what they pointed. And um, I try to write in a similar way. I aim for brevity, clarity, and simplicity. Um, and if you would ask, what am I 
trying to enable us to see. I suppose one way to put it, and I'll cite something else from Conrad here, to, to, which can perhaps illustrate what I mean, is to alert the reader to the absurdity of what he or she is taking for granted. To alert the reader to the absurdity of what's going on around them. Conrad has a lovely line somewhere in one of his novels, where um, one of his earlier novels, where he describes a, a then French battleship um, going down the coast uh, in Africa somewhere. And he says, from time to time, the uh, battleship would fire into the jungle. Mm. He said there'd be a puff of smoke, and they'd fire into the jungle and move on. And he said it was a droll spectacle. I don't think anyone could pick a better word than that word, mm. droll. Mm. It was a droll spectacle. And then when you read about Conrad's life and read about how he wrote, you find that he, he would lie on the dirty floor of a railway train when traveling with Ford Maddox Ford, struggling for an hour for one word. Now, this was partly, of course, because English was his third language, not mm -hmm. his second. His second was French, his first was Polish. But it was also his approach to writing. He said, I write by the word. It was a very taxing experience mm -hmm. for him in many, many ways. Um, but a droll, a droll spectacle. And, of course, you know, one can think of um, examples of that now. Uh, I mean, one of the uh, most striking is um, I was listening to the news uh, on television yesterday, and uh, there was a, 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 a report about um, Libya. And the newsreader said, um, since the collapse of Libya, um, there have been a large number of refugees. Well, it wasn't exactly that Libya collapsed. Libya was subject to a Western intervention, which toppled the Gaddafi regime, in many ways a tyrannous regime. But everything that's since followed, including the increased flow of refugees to um, Italy and elsewhere, um, has followed from that. What there's been there is, is a, uh, an anarchical situation in which there's no government, which practically everyone is armed, um, uh, in which uh, um, uh, refugees are desperate to get out of the country and get somewhere safer. And that occurs, uh, has occurred as a result of a, um, a Western intervention, primarily French and British. And if you look into the Western intervention, you know, there'll be a tendency for many critics of it. I'm a critic of it. I oppose it all along and still oppose it, just as I opposed the Iraq war before the Iraq war even happened. I started opposing it from 2002 when it became clear that it would happen. Uh, but if you talk to the critics, many of the critics of these wars say there are, there's a hidden agenda. And the hidden agenda is oil or it's um, geopolitics or it's, it's one thing and another. And there may be some elements of a hidden agenda, um, but... Um, I don't think they're the, the essence of it. Um, if you ask why are these, you know, the hidden agenda didn't work, for one thing, in Libya. Um, Libyan oil production collapsed. If it was in Iraq to get the oil or to somehow expropriate the oil, that collapsed. It took 10 years to get back to the uh, original um, uh, level of production. Quite a lot of the oil that is produced ends up in the hands of ISIS and is sold off in international markets. So if there had been an original agenda of that kind, hasn't worked. And yet the unending um, pattern is repeated and repeated and repeated. Droll, you might say, droll. Um, so that's just the kind of example, which is that the, the aim of kind of taking the a little bit, and I don't say that I, I, I wouldn't for a moment claim that I can 
I myself or, uh, can see the world as it is, whatever that might mean, or that the reader can through reading my book. But just by taking off a little bit of the uh, clean, cl cleansing the, the lens of a little mm. bit, we can see aspects. And a lot of what goes on in the world, um, uh, a lot of the things that are the most terrible uh, in terms of their human costs to human well-being and freedom and human life and to the environment and to other species and so on, um, are not the products of hidden agendas or conspiratorial elites or wicked corporate power or irresponsible governments, as much as they're the product of power being used to ends that are completely mad. They're absurd. They're completely absurdities. Um, uh, Carlo and I were just talking before we came in about um, a film we'd both seen on BBC television called Bitter Lake, in which um, contains a passage uh, film of a moment in which British cultural missionaries were sent to Afghanistan to aid the war effort. And the, the cultural missionaries took their cultural mission, the aim of a part of their cultural mission, which was actually filmed, so it really happened, was one in which they lectured grou a group of Afghans, including a group of Afghan women, on um, Marcel Duchamp's urinal. <laughs> so they're they're in a room, a darkened room. There is a, a lecturer from... from, uh, from the Slade or somewhere. From the Slade or somewhere. And there's a group of slightly in anxious, nervous, baffled <laughs> Afghans. And behind the lecturer is an enormous image of the urinal. And the lecturer is saying, um, Duchamp wanted to deconstruct the power structure. Duchamp wanted to shift the discourse. Yeah. Duchamp wanted to, uh, to exploit and subvert the conceptual frameworks. Terrifying people sitting there. Uh, what's it all about? What are they going to do? Do they want money? Do they want... Are they, they going to recruit us? Do we have to take part in some strange film? Or what's the, so Now, is that part of some masterly Machiavellian, Machiavellian project? by wicked people in Washington and London. No, it's sheer madness from beginning to end. It's utter absurdity from beginning to end, which carries with it, of course, all kinds of horrific human consequences. Mm. So, I mean, that's, the, that's if you like, um, I'm often accused of being slightly pessimistic. I don't know why. But uh, uh, that's the negative side of it. But I also want to point in my writing to the possibilities of seeing the world in a slightly different way in different aspects which include these terrible absurdities, but in having different expectations and different ways of responding to these absurdities, which, which can be humanly enriching, in which people can um, see the world a little more clearly and yet um, enjoy being in it. Well, st Straw Dogs, um, it ends. Can mm. we not think of the aim of life that's as it. being simply to see? Yeah, that's a question, and though, not a, yeah. not a prescription. Not a prescription. And the soul of the marionette begins mm. with seeing. It begins mm. with um, a, a, an essay stroke story mm. by Pleiss, mm. um, which is all it, it, at the center of it. The kernel, kernel of it is what you see when you look at a puppet. Mm. And that's the way into the book. So tell us about the Kleist yeah. and the marionette and yeah. the conceit. This is um, the story that um, Kleist, the early 19th century German poet, tells 
uh, a tremendously resonant story. It was taken up by a lot of later writers, Kafka and uh, Rilke and um, Bruno Schultz and many, many others. And the story really is simply of a conversation in front of a fairground, play, uh, a fairground um, 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 puppet show in which the, the speaker says, and this is the paradox, if you like, about the book. He says, if you look at these puppets, he says, don't you see when you look at these puppets, don't you see them moving more spontaneously than humans do? Don't you see them moving more gracefully? Their movements aren't stuttering and stumbling. If you look at humans, they almost always seem as if they're on the point of falling down. Um, uh, they don't know what to do. Their movements are jerky. If you look at these puppets, they're graceful. They, f it, they, don't, they don't seem to even um, touch the earth. They just kind of float. And he says the other thing about these puppets is they don't have any affectation. Humans always seem to be putting on some kind of show which is different from whatever they're actually feeling or choosing or seeing mm. themselves. They're trying to conceal that in some way. They're trying to appear because they're different from what they are because their source of gravity is somehow kind of disturbed, whereas the puppets um, uh, um, um, are resistant to gravity. They seem to just kind of float. And when I read this story many, many years ago, uh, perhaps 30 or 40 years ago, I was sort of puzzled as to what gravity was. And I later, when I reread it uh, a year or two, uh, two or three years ago, um, and, and it gave me the idea of this book, um, I concluded that it was sort of, in a way, what obvious what gravity was. Gravity was the burden of choice. What the puppets, according to um, uh, uh, Kleist's speaker, are free of is the burden of choice. They don't have to choose to. They just kind of do what they do. They're in their actions. They're inhabit they inhabit their, uh, they inhabit their actions. So... Um, Kleist then goes on to sort of, or Kleist speaker, then goes on to say that um, there are really only two types of freedom. And I had tell you in advance, it's not my view, the whole book is a criticism of this view, but it's a very interesting view, is that what freedom really is and what in fact many human beings want when they say they want freedom is not more choice but freedom from choice. What they want to be is uh, more like the puppet or more like a god because what Kleist's speaker says is really true freedom can only really come in two forms, that of the puppet, um, uh, who uh, uh, um, simply acts, and that of a god uh, who uh, is fully conscious of the world and of himself or herself. They know themselves, they know the world, and therefore knowing everything, knowing all that needs to be known, they're not faced with this constant necessity, which we humans are faced with, of blundering our way, sniffing our way through life. Though we don't know the consequences of our actions, we, uh, we don't even know why we take them. We don't know if, you, if any of us look back in our lives. I mean, do we really know why we did the important things in our lives no. that we did, that, why we did them? I mean, we can construct a story, of course, in retrospect, but do we actually know why we do what we do? I don't think we do. We know very little of what, what, why we know why we do what we do. Whereas the puppet doesn't need to know. Someone else is animating the puppet. And um, the god presumably knows everything. So these are these, so that's the kind of background idea which, which the whole book, which then goes on in 20 separate short um, sections, usually each one connected with a text by some writer who may be well-known, Philip K. Dick, may not be very well-known, the early 19th century poet Leopardi is one, Bruno Schultz, who should be well-known, um, uh, uh, or 
uh, not many of them are philosophers, actually. Um, and on each of them, I try to um, think, to try to apply this so that we ask ourselves the question, when we think we want freedom, what is it that we think we want and why do we think we want it? And do we really want it? Uh, the book is, the book explores a number of different ways in which things control us mm. that we are not necessarily mm. aware of. Mm. And um, the first, uh, ideological premises, for instance, and the, f the first sort of body of control is Gnosticism. Mm. Tell us about Gnosticism yes, and, and I mean Christianity and, and how Christ that has... Yeah. Taken us over. Well, it actually comes from the Kleist story because the, uh, at the end of the Kleist story, Kleist, um, Kleist speaker mentions the book of Genesis in the, uh, in the Old Testament and, and the Genesis myth. And uh, the speaker gives an interpretation of the, this myth, which is in fact a Gnostic interpretation. The Gnostics <coughs> were a movement which secreted itself in many different religions and philosophies in the ancient world. There were Jewish Gnostics, Christian Gnostics, Muslim Gnostics, possibly Buddhist, Platonistic Gnostics, but it was a very widespread um, movement uh, for quite a long time. And I think it survived in new and different forms in our modern time now. I think there are plenty of unknowing Gnostics nowadays. And I'll come back to that later, perhaps, when I'm talking with, with, with Carlo. But what the... Um, the, the, the Gnostic interpretation of Genesis, the book of Genesis, was that the liberator, the hero, is the serpent. The, 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 the liberator in the, in, in, in the Gnostic myth um, uh, is actually the serpent who offers Adam and Eve knowledge. And the Gnostic, it comes from the Greek word gnosis, gnosis. The, the Gnostic idea is uh, that uh, what liberates human beings is knowledge. That's, that's what we need. If we, got, if we really get enough knowledge, we could liberate ourselves from what? Well, from the evils that go with being human, if you like, from having to work, from having to die, from being dependent on uh, other human beings who may attack us or neglect us. Uh, all of these kinds of uh, vulnerability, if you like, we could free ourselves from if we got the right knowledge. And the, in the ancient world, there were masses and masses of sects and practitioners of Gnosticism who attempted to achieve a kind of radical freedom like this, mostly men, but some of them were women uh, as well. They were mostly forgotten about, but there were forms of Gnostic Christianity which were actually dominated by women uh, and forms of uh, uh, dissident Judaism and others. Um, and they practiced in monasteries, they practiced ascetic disciplines of contemplation and prayer. And uh, the goal was, their goal was sort of a very, very radical goal, was to achieve freedom by exiting the material <coughs> cosmos, the world, and exiting their own bodies. Because they saw, and this is a very Gnostic idea, which many people have now, including some who think of themselves as uh, uh, humanists or transhumanists or futurists of the Silicon Valley um, uh, uh, breed. Uh, they, think of them, they think of humans, the ancient Gnostics now, as sparks of spirit or consciousness imprisoned in a body. Our bodies are weak, they get ill, they get old. I could speak of this from a non-theoretical from a, from a non basis by now. Uh, they get weaker um, and they get older and we die. Um, and uh, one of the uh, goals of Gnosticism, a very radical kind of goal, the radical, most radical demand for freedom ever is, we don't want to do any of these things. In the ancient world, they could liberate themselves from the body, ascend from the body into a world in which there was 
they weren't bodies, they were just sparks of intelligence. There was no time, there was no vulnerability, there was no mortality. They could even fuse together, stop and cease being individuals altogether. They'd be sent to some higher world. And very interestingly, I think this idea has kind of returned nowadays um, in, um, in uh, uh, various forms of kind of uh, transhumanist and futurist thought. For example, in uh, the work which some of you may be aware of, Ray Kurzweil, is that a name that... Uh, um, he's Tell us about Ray. Well, Ray, he's a very brilliant thinker. I mean, I often attack him, but he's actually a very, uh, he's actually a very brilliant thinker. And he's not marginal. I mean, a few years ago when I used to mention him, they'd say, oh, he's, nobody takes him seriously. That's all nonsense. He's a straw man, everyone. Nobody takes him seriously for a moment. Well, he's director of uh, engineering at Google Yeah. now. Which is a small organization. A small organization, yes. but relatively... Minor influence. Relatively well-funded. <laughs> and he's been given... A free hand. He has to do particular things for him. I understand. I, do, I don't know him, but he has to um, do particular things for them. But he's also got a free hand working on the things that interest him: artificial intelligence, and also his various got various projects. He's um, he uh, uh, he's constructed, and I find this humanly moving, though in a certain sense also absurd. He's constructed a, a, a virtual avatar of his dead father. Uh, and the reason is, he thinks if he can put in all the information from various different sources about his father, he'll be able to, and that information is sort of processed within the avatar, that he can have conversations with the avatar in which the avatar tells him things that uh, he didn't know about his father and that his, uh, or from his father, and that the people who put the information in didn't know because it'll be processed in kind of new ways. So it will be as if a replica of his father. My, the reason I think it's absurd is that actually there's nothing there. I mean, at least if you're a religious or a spiritualist of some kind, you think that you can be in touch with some uh, personalities or uh, minds that have survived bodily death. That's the idea of, uh, um, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you believe that, I wrote a whole book about that, in, um, um, the, the Immortalization Commission. But in this case, he kind of creates it. He has these kind of things. He's also on a diet, which he was interviewed. Again, you see, he's not so fringe that he's, not, that he's ignored. He was in he a two-page interview with him in the Financial Times just a couple of weeks ago. And in there, he said that he's on this uh, uh, diet of pill taking. He says he only takes 150 pills a day now, and it only costs two or three thousand dollars a day. And the reason for that is that he wants to. He believes that if he carries on with his rigorous diet and constant blood tests and so on, he'll live long enough. Uh, I think it's now till 2042, though the date shifts slightly from time to time. Absurdity again, you see. But he lived long enough to, to, to experience the singularity. And the singularity occurs when all kinds of changes in scientific knowledge and technology come together in a sudden explosive change. Now, at that point, it would be possible to uplaid, upload the mind, his mind, into cyberspace. A Gnostic vision, you see, he's in cyberspace, no body anymore, he's not going to die, he's got lots more knowledge, he's up there, floating about, for practical purposes, immortal. It's, an, it's, it's, an, it's a Gnostic vision, and yet I would bet a decent sum of money that he's never read any of the Gnostics or... Probably. No, he's really big on Gnosticism. Is he? He told me, yeah. Oh, he told yeah. you. <laughs> there we are. Yeah. Uh, but um, uh, um, I don't think he knows much about it, though, no. uh, on the other hand. Um, because if he knew a lot about it, he would see that he's really transferred from the mystical and esoteric and occult, semi-occult and metaphysical language of the Gnostics. He's turned that into, into science. So that's kind of the background of the book. And what I say there is, if you ask, what's the religion of most people in the world now, people who aren't strongly believing Christians or uh, practicing Jews or Buddhists or Muslims. And what is it that people who think they have no beliefs believe? 
And the thing that practically everyone believes is that knowledge liberates. They think that by knowing more about the world and more through science, not mystical knowledge, because they don't believe that anymore, they don't believe what Plato or Socrates or the Gnostics <laughs> thought that it was mystical knowledge, but the scientific knowledge, or some of them would think knowledge gained of themselves through psychotherapy, through psychoanalysis, that if they can acquire knowledge of themselves and of other people and of the world and of the laws that govern the world, somehow that knowledge can be used so that they, uh, or the, even the whole of humanity, uh, though if it's going to cost $3,000 a day, it won't be the whole of humanity who enjoys this, but uh, that they will be able to free themselves from immemorial evils. They won't die. They won't, they won't get fat. Or if they're fat, they'll get thin. And by the way, uh, uh, um, uh, um, uh, Kurzweil has actually produced a diet book. I'm not making this up. Look it up on the web. It's, it's called Transcend. And in the diet book, it's how to diet be around in 2042, when you'll be thin forever. You'll be immortally thin. Of course, you won't have a body, so you'll be very, very thin indeed. Uh, uh, and it's how, how, to actually, how, to, how, to actually, um, how to actually do this. So the idea that knowledge can enable us to, uh, to do it. My own view is just very, very different. My, knowledge, my view is that knowledge is, um, enables human beings to do things they couldn't do before. It makes human beings both to themselves, to other human beings, and to the natural environment. Knowledge enhances human power, the power of some humans over other humans, the power of humans over nature, the power of humans sometimes over themselves. But it, it doesn't enhance human rationality, it doesn't enhance human wisdom, and it doesn't enhance human goodness. It doesn't do any of these things. And in this respect, the book of Genesis was right. One of the things that... Uh, the book is a bracing read, and I mean that as a, a compliment. You won't all survive the experience. Uh, <laughs> no, it, I don't mean that. It, it also talks about the things... It, it talks about our, de our, our desire to be immortal mm. and you know, to upload our brains into the cyberspace mm. and the way that a Gnostic vision lives on, mm. which he wouldn't understand or know about. But it also talks at length about how that which is the blindingly obvious, we avert our gaze from, mm. and that we don't want to know. Mm. So we don't want to engage, or some of us, large numbers of us, not you and I, none of the people in this audience no, either. We all want to engage. We do, uh, but people outside Smock Alley Theatre do yeah. not want to engage right. with Mr. James Lovelock mm. and with the Gaia idea. Mm. And you've also got another, separately, you don't talk about Pinker by name, but mm. you talk about this idea that mm. Wars are, you know, actually, things are only, it, it, it's, it's better upwards and onwards. I mean, because less people are dying, mm. apparently, allegedly, mm. um, on the battlefield. Talk about why mm. do we mm. not want to face the, the truth? How are we able to push the terrible yeah. casualties of the Iraq war out of view? How are we mm. able to push um, James? And guy and Pinker is out of mind. Let's start with Pink, Pinker because I, Pinker. I had a, I wouldn't describe it as an exchange, but <laughs> um, we both had. abrasive. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was incomprehending, which is better than abrasive in a sense. But um, um, I did a piece in The Guardian, which was an expansion of a chapter in my book, so you can see the chapter in the book. Pinker's not mentioned in the thing itself, but he is in the, in the, in the footnotes. I say this is really about, about Pinker. And I think this is. It's, an in it's interesting, because he's kind of 
symptomatic, I think, in a way, because what Pinker does is, I mean, if you dispense with religion, and he says, he, and I'm not religious, I'm an atheist, but if you dispense with religion, but you carry over from religion some kind of need or demand for a, um, a story or a myth or a, or, or a way of seeing the world, which will somehow give human life a kind of an inherent meaning and value, which will give it a kind of, which will give a story which everyone can participate. If you carry that over into modern times, then one form in which that assumes itself, uh, one form in which that appears, is a belief in numbers. That sci a kind of quantitative analysis of the world, which shows that the world is improving in certain identifiable respects, be immensely consoling because it'll give you a story. So if you, if you believe, you turn the television on and you see little old ladies um, in Ukraine um, living in uh, basements of bombed out buildings and uh, they're interviewed. Now if it goes through your mind, as I hope it does, uh, if the question goes through your mind, um, where will those little old ladies be uh, two winters from now? They'll be dead, probably. Or more of them will be dead than would have been hmm. the case otherwise. That's a kind of painful thought. And it's painful because there's no obvious way why, how this war, this complex and largely undeclared proxy war between Europe and America on the one hand and Russia on the other hand, in which um, uh, uh, there are faults and deceptions on both sides and cruelty and terrible violence on both sides. And so there's no obvious way it can be ended, in my view. It could go on in a kind of low you know, intensity, but was constant for a long, long time. So if you think in that way, um, it's a very painful thought, very difficult thought. To, uh, but if someone comes along and says, but look, how many people have really died in Ukraine? Hardly any by 20th century standards. Even in, even in um, Syria, where uh, uh, there would be um, terrible, ferocious war going on and on and on, complete destruction of cities where Aleppo, ancient, beautiful city, terrible human ca uh, horrors have occurred there, and the whole city is more or less in ruined. Um, and you could say, my God, you're over I'm, I'm being overwhelmed by all this. And someone comes along and says, but you know, if you look at the statistics carefully, you'll see a steady decline in human fatalities. So don't, be, don't get too emotional about all this. Uh, of course, it's bad. No one denies that it's um, uh, bad to perish in circumstance. But the number of casualties is declining. So I think the story has an immense appeal because what it does is it enables people to see a, uh, to, to see the, a story, a narrative, a myth of improvement, as I would say, uh, going on um, despite these episodes. Now, what are my kind of objections to the... What questions do I ask about this, this, this Pinker um, narrative? Well, the first thing is that to the extent that... Um, I'll just mention a few because I don't want to go about them too long, but there are kind of few questions I would raise about it and then... Uh, we can go on. One is, to the extent that casualties on the battlefields have fallen, and they really have, um, dramatically, to the extent that large-scale wars of the kind that happened so often, and particularly in the two world wars in the 20th century, don't, haven't happened in, um, in the late 20th century and in the 21st century, the main reason is the nuclear balance of terror. The main reason. The main reason is that um, uh, Russia can't attack America, America can't attack Russia, America can't attack China, China can't attack America, etc. The main reason is that for really vast 
cataclysmic world wars like the two world wars of the 20th century is that the great powers can't engage with each other directly, but they can, and what they can do is engage with each other in proxy wars. And there have been countless proxy wars, um, uh, not only in Syria and Ukraine, but in Vietnam and in Korea and all over the place um, uh, uh, in, the, in the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And something else has gone on, which I think is very important. It brings to me my, my kind of ethical objection to all this, which is that um, non-combatants uh, have gone up as a, as, a, as a category of people whose lives have been shortened or ended by war. That's to say, if you look at a war like the unending war or, or com complex of wars that have gone on in the Congo for decades and decades and decades, the majority of those who perished as a result of that war are not uh, militias, people in militias. They're um, non-combatants who've been dislocated, uh, uh, raped, uh, uh, tortured, in some way, their lives have been have, have been ended, and my kind of my basic object, one of my basic ethical objections to this is that um, there are I mean, put it like there are many types of lethal violence, violence which shorten or end people's lives, which don't lead to immediate death. If you are herded into a, if you end up in a camp in um, in, uh, in somewhere in Syria or in Jordan or somewhere as a result of this cataclysmic war, and you die. Uh, um, 10 or 20 or 30 years earlier than you would have otherwise died, are you a casualty of that war? I would say yes. If you're raped in some strategy of military violence, military, sexual violence, which, a lot, which happens in a lot of these places, not only in the Middle East, not only in Africa, but also in Europe, in, in the Balkans, um, and you subsequently uh, uh, find it very difficult to carry on living, and you some, some, rec some recover, some uh, are able to, to carry on and so on, but others can't. Um, are you, uh, are you, should you be counted in the, in, in, in the, ca in the roll call of, of casualties? These little old ladies who don't live more than two more windows, should they be counted? And can they be counted? In fact, one of, the, one of the issues I think here is that much of the human cost of the types of war that now wage in the war is, is incalculable. There are no exact figures because, and there can't be, because it involves making moral judgments. Um, supposing you're born, even now, 50 years later, as a, 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 an infant in Vietnam um, whose uh, uh, body and lifespan is shortened by Agent Orange, which has affected the mother of the mother. Are you a casualty of that war if you die after 10 years instead of 50 or 60 years? I would say yes, but Pink is looking at these figures and he needs, he wants to look at these figures and the, and the, the power of the book, the appeal of the book is that if you look at these figures, um, it, gives you a, uh, it gives you massive grabs. What would be more authoritative now? Not churches or temples or mm. synagogues or mosques, mm. but graphs and figures. You say, must be true, must be true. Look at, look at these, look at that line. It's sort of going down very smoothly, actually. Little blips here and there. Um, and so in, in, my, uh, in, art, the article, in, in the book and in the article I did for The Guardian, um, I suggested, well, you know, this is wonderful. It's a wonderful book, this. It, it gives hope to many people. But we should do something better. We should really, this is a time of new technologies. Shouldn't we invent a kind of wearable technology which you can program to give you um, the latest statistics on human improvement whenever you feel down? And it'll, it's got an algorithm there that whatever's happening in the world, however terrible, it'll be programmed to show that it's purely temporary. And in fact, it's in some way actually positive. 
that it's actually producing better and better things. So that's, I think, the... By the way, I have other objections I won't go into. For example, I mean, the figures would all have been completely different if one human being at the time of the... Um, at the time of the uh, Cuba crisis back in the early 60s, um, a Soviet submariner um, refused to, uh, his captain's orders to fire, a, uh, um, it's in the, the references are in the book, um, uh, to fire a, a, nu a nuclear um, torpedo. If he'd fired it, it seems there would have been quite a considerable likelihood of exchanges and of a nuclear war. I, I was, I'm old enough to remember that. I mean, we all kind of glued to our television sets or radios, thinking, this is it. This is it. This is what we've all been afraid of. Could happen. And it turns out almost did. Almost did. Um, uh, but one human being said, I'm not doing it. Um, there wasn't such a war. Um, but if there had been, millions and millions would have died and have died later of various kinds of... And all the figures would have been different. In other words, it turns on the fall of a leaf. Mm. This is not a kind of process, an inexorable process pressing forward. It turns on the fall of a leaf. It turns on that one, um, that one, that one, that one human being. So, but the, the the power of it is that it's a story which kind of grips people, and they feel then that they can be carried along by this process of improvement. And you know, there are improvements in history. Um, there are advances in history. They're real advances, um, um, but they can be undone pretty quickly and not very frequently have been undone pretty quickly. So it's not, it's not that there are no improvements. It's not that our society is better than other societies in the past in a number of ways. The position of women is better. There are certain types of welfare, although it's also being reduced now in other, in other, in other contexts that have been extended. Um, uh, um, uh, gay people have freedom that they didn't have, and I believe you're going to have a uh, referendum on that. I hope it goes through here. The only thing that David Cameron never did that. He deserves to be reminded, remembered for, was to bring that in in Britain. Um, uh, uh, that's what he'll go down in history for, I think, in the end. Um, it'd be a kind of noble footnote, probably not much else, but still, uh, that's, a, that's a good thing. So there are improvements, but they're all, all, all can be reversed and very often are reversed. If you've been a woman living in Iraq under Saddam, uh, um, you would have seen after the invasion an enormous worsening of your um, situation. If you'd been a, a Christian or a Yazidi uh, 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 under Saddam, despite all the terrible um, persecution, if you'd been one of the last true remaining Gnostics, the last yeah. Gnostics went all the way back to the original Gnostics, unbroken, the Mandians lived in Saddam, they'd survived Saddam, they'd survived the Ottomans, they'd survived the British, they'd survived... 2,000 years, most of them have emigrated now, had to flee to, um, in the anarchy that followed, have had to flee to London and Melbourne and other parts of the world. Um, um, those uh, uh, the, the kind of advances or um, amenities of civilization are real, but they're very easily lost and regularly are lost. And that's, as it were, um, uh, something that in the ancient world nobody doubted. Um, uh, but now it's very difficult for people to swallow um, because their faith is the Gnostic, a version of the Gnostic faith, that knowledge can lead not maybe to radical total transformation. You could be a kind of, if you like, a moderate Gnostic, kind of liberal democrat Gnostic, shall we say, uh, an incremental Gnostic. You could think that, um, uh, you know, we can't free ourselves from death, we can't be perpetually thin, but over time we could get slightly thinner. 
um, uh, uh, we could gradually improve our situation. Well, of course, you can, but what's not kind of factored into this uh, uh, view is that what is gained is always at risk and can always be, and normally is over time, lost. Why are we... Well, the submariner mm. who didn't fire the torpedo, mm. um, he's a very interesting mm. person because the, the narrative is that actually Kennedy faced down Khrushchev, mm. and if he hadn't, um, with the help of Schlesinger et al., mm. the world would have been destroyed. And actually mm. it turns out to be a Russian who just yeah. said no, yeah. which was an incredibly brave thing to do. I suppose he was court-martialed. No, he wasn't. He went, what happened was he wasn't praised for it ever. I think in the Gorbachev period... I think I've. Uh, I think he was revived. I don't know if he was still alive, but he was sort of. He was revived and said that, that was a noble thing to do. It was. But he went back, and I think he was sidelined. Right. I don't think he was caught martial because he didn't want to publicise it. Okay. He was just sidelined, and you know, as, as a, a kind of form of human nobility, uh, they say no good deed is ever unpunished. He wasn't exactly punished, but he was <laughs> sort of ignored, and um, it's only subsequently. Um, I've, it's only later that the story has been been told. But there are... And th th that's an example, as you said, of something turning. Just... On a leaf. On a leaf. But there's another narrative, which you also talk mm. about in The Soul of the Marionette, um, which is slow, incremental, mm. progressive. Mm. It's the Gaia theory and what is our attitude towards the, the, the natural environment mm. and to the world. Mm. And our indefatigable resistance mm. to listening? Mm. Or why are we so stubborn and obtuse? <laughs> what well, is wrong with us? Well, it might sort of... this. I guess you could say that our stubbornness um, as a species is, is, um, has an evolutionary value um, or has had for a long time. And uh, the, uh, I guess... Um, uh, uh, I mean, I'm not that much of a fan for evolutionary psychology, but there's something in it. Uh, there must be, if you think Darwin's um, uh, theory of uh, natural selection is true, which is that the characteristics we have are ones which enable us to get through life and, uh, and reproduce. And I guess a certain kind of irrational stubbornness could be useful. I say when everything's against you, um, uh, uh, when everything looks black, the ones who will survive will be the ones who go on anyway. They, uh, in other words, if you kind of make a rational assessment of the odds and say, to hell with it, I'm giving up. Um, you won't be one of them. By the way, it didn't always like that. I knew a, a Polish man, who, um, a scholar who died about 20 years ago, and he told me from his own life that um, he'd been in some Polish um, brigade fighting the um, Nazis, and um, uh, at one point he was marched off. They were ca captured in, into the woods. And uh, they were told by their captors that um, they would get, um, that they weren't going to be, nothing would happen to them, that was bad. Um, that um, uh, uh, they were going to get uh, food and uh, water and possibly even cigarettes. And the reason was a very rational reason, which everyone accepted, except him. Um, he said, the reason is that we need you as laborers. We want you to work as laborers. Um, so, you know, don't be, don't be silly. We wouldn't, can't imagine that we would kill you all, would you, if we need you as laborers. laborers. And I said, well, what do you think? He said, I didn't believe it. I thought, these people are crazy. <laughs> uh, so I said, well, how did he say, was it difficult? He said, no, I told the guard, the very likely guard, that I needed to answer a call of nature. I went about behind a bush and I didn't come out. They marched on, what happened to the same? Never heard of again. 
or perished. Um, so it isn't always the case that indefatigable optimism works. It isn't always the case that a belief in the rationality of the world, they say, they wouldn't, why would they have any reason to do this? It's completely absurd. We'll work for them. They'll have to feed us. They'll have to give us something. Um, no, it doesn't always work like that. Um, not when you're confronted with the naked irrationality of sheer uh, uh, cruelty and fanaticism. But he, so he survived and uh, uh, went to England. This was during the Second World War. Went back and fought again. Amazing. And after the war became a scholar in, in Britain. Um, so very, very uh, brave man, ready to risk his life, but not, not one who, who, who did it, who trusted it, uh, to kind of optimism. So one answer, I guess, your question was, uh, Carlo, why won't we listen? That's kind of one answer, a kind of evolutionary answer. It doesn't always work, but that's why most of us are like that, I guess, or many human beings. But there's another answer, which is sort of from our ruling myth. Our ruling myth, which comes really from monotheistic religion, tells us that we're different from the rest of nature, um, uh, that we have certain attributes that other animals don't have, that we have consciousness that they're supposed not to have that we have free will that they're not supposed to have, and that these attributes enable us to um, uh, govern nature or mm. uh, control nature uh, as we want. And, um, and I think many of the, actually some of the Greens have these very attributes, uh, although they don't recognize the fact. So, for example, when they're talking about global warming, they often say humans caused global warming, which I think they did, by the way. I'm not persuaded by any of these so-called climate skeptics who say that there's no evidence for this. All the evidence, I've talked to scientists, some of them haven't got any, haven't got any ideological, and with Lovelock and others, any ideological axe to grind and say, look, it's connected with, I mean, it's clearly connected with, there may be some other factors, but the key connection is, is really is, is global warming is a side effect of uh, the industrialization of the last 200 years and of the various kinds of um, uh, uh, carbon production and, and, and so on. And, um, and uh, 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 of that period. I don't think there's any doubt about it. But they then say, well, if humans have started it, humans can end it. Mm -hmm. See, that's the kind of leap. If humans have done it, humans can undo it. Well, there are two reasons why humans can't undo what they've done. One is geophysical, which is that a lot of the pollution is in the atmosphere and will be around for a long, long time. It's there. Um, even if the whole world stopped polluting tomorrow, be a lot of it around for a long time. And the second reason is not geophysical, but geopolitical, which is that um, in the world there, are, there isn't humanity as some kind of active entity deciding things. There are lots of different powers. There are, there are corporations, there are states, there are criminal gangs and so on. There are various kinds. And they all do things for their own reasons. Um, uh, I think it's a generally um, uh, um, well-supported observation that the Russian Mafia doesn't attend conferences on climate change. <laughs> You'd say to them, but look, look what you're doing to the CO2 content of Siberia. Look, don't you see, the, don't you see that? Can't you see that? They don't care. Or if, you, if, you, if, you, if you're a country whose wealth primarily depends on uh, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, uh, um, uh, Iran, plenty of Nigeria, plenty of different examples. Britain, <laughs> until recently, it's run down now, uh, on um, fossil fuel production. Um, look, look, can't you see what you're uh, doing? 
Um, uh, there's no mechanism, there's no decision procedure, there's no, there will be reasons why either the powers that be or even the populations of those countries will want to go on um, uh, um, um, exploiting, exploiting the, uh, the fossils. And even, by the way, here's another kind of, this is, kind of, I mean, it's not all bad news, <laughs> there's some good news here. But, uh, the, the, but one thing is, even if, it's, if you get new technologies coming along, and solar is the one which is particularly expanding in China and in, in, in the Middle East and anywhere, but if you get, and if you get new technologies coming along which um, uh, reduce the need for uh, fossil fuels, one consequence of that, hardly ever noticed, but it's actually probably happening already, is that the price of, it's not that people stop extracting fossil fuels, it's that the price of fossil fuels fall, falls, and those countries that have a lot of fossil fuels, they have an incentive to, 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 to extract them and put them on the market straight away. If you think the fossil fuel price is going to fall and fall and fall in a steady pattern, what about those countries and parts of the world which depend on them most? They'll have an incentive to, to use them and not, not to stop uh, 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 using them. So it's very, very difficult to get out of this. Now, Lovelock thinks, and I agree with him here, that the solution here is, is really adaptation. It's really back to kind of a rather well, humans are rather hardy, resilient animals. And um, uh, we can't actually stop this process for, for geophysical reasons, just mentioned, and also for geopolitical reasons. There's no one there to stop it. There's no kind of collective entity, humanity, that takes decisions. But um, we can uh, uh, adapt to it. By the way, one of the things we should be aware of, and Lovelock's warned against this, but I think this will happen, probably. The warnings won't be heeded. We should be aware of these gigantic schemes of geoengineering. I don't know if some of you have heard about these schemes. Putting a huge screen in front of the sun. <laughs> or or seeding, the, seeding the oceans with certain kinds of chemicals to change their composition. They're being seriously discussed um, by, by various people. To, to, in other words, to kind of uh, to put the planet on dialysis. We've screwed it up to the point it's almost collapsing. Um, what will we do? Uh, we'll put it on dialysis and keep it going for a bit longer. Now, why shouldn't we do that? Well, for one thing, we don't understand the climate system well enough. We don't understand. By the way, a lot of this does go on at various levels. I was in a uh, conference in, um, in Beijing a few years ago, and uh, I woke up in my hotel room feeling very, very cold. I wondered why that was. I looked out the window and it had been snowing. And it wasn't time of the year when it normally snowed. Um, so I found out then that there'd been a, uh, what was described as a successful um, exercise in climate engineering uh, in Beijing, which, uh, which is that the clouds had been seeded and snow had fallen as was planned. Hmm. What we don't find, and I, I believe that happened also during the Olympics there, what we don't know, and it isn't publicized, uh, by the way, this was public, no, I didn't find it, I just turned the television on, and the next day it was said, there was a successful, it was an English language program, there was a successful exercise in climate engineering. But for everyone that's successful, there'll be 20 that are not successful, and for, ev for every 100 or 200, they'll all interact with each other in ways we don't understand. So it'll have kind of long-term effects. And one of the things that Lovelock has warned against, he, has, he hasn't set himself adamantly against any geoengineering, because if really the climate does start uh, altering radically, then um, uh, it will happen anyway, probably. But what he says is, remember you don't know what you're doing. Remember that when you do this, you really have no idea of, of, of what you're doing. Um, it's like the horrible things that were done to, 
people with mental ill health problems, uh, um, drilling holes in their brain. I recently reviewed a book on uh, Magnus. I didn't know this was uh, mass tonsillectomy was practiced mm. at one point because it was thought that the Germans that the germs that produce madness collect in the tonsils. So it, there were mental institutions in America and elsewhere that practiced mass tonsillectomy on their inmates. It didn't work, so they moved on to removing other bits. Um, insanity. Uh, and uh, so insanity as a weapon against insanity. Um, uh, a deranged form of viewing um, mental derangement. If, it did, if, if the poor people who suffered this did indeed uh, suffer from mental derangement. So one of the things one can do is to say, um, steer clear as far as possible, for as long as possible, of these types of... Because we, we don't understand it. It's better to try and adapt. It'll be difficult. But actually, that's a, that's a, that's a better... And I think that's a kind of unpopular message because it suggests that we're not in control. We can adapt. Sure, and we will adapt, I think. Um, um, we've got examples in certain parts of Europe, even. The, 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 uh, the, the Dutch have adapted to... Um, uh, 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 problems of uh, uh, um, uh, coastal erosion and uh, threats of flooding over long, long periods um, uh, can be done. But it's unpopular and it, it's, it's a resistance. We don't kind of want to hear it because it's just um, we can't control. We can't control these. We can't be stewards of the earth. I mean, whenever, uh, whenever I hear of someone saying, you know, what we really need is to be stewards of the earth, I wonder, who the hell are they talking about? Who's going to do this stewardship? Um, uh, um, humans aren't intelligent enough to do that, aren't wise enough to do it. But at the very end of the book, you, you bring the marionette mm. and the idea of adaptation together. Mm. And you talk about negative capability. Mm. Keats, so I went and looked it up. It's a letter, isn't it? Yeah, yeah it's a letter he wrote to his brothers, George mm. and Thomas. Mm. And he said... I have not a dispute, but a disquisition with Dilk, who I think was an MP, yes. upon various subjects. Several things dovetailed in my mind, and at once it struck me what quality went to form a capital M man of capital A achievement, especially in literature, and which Shakespeare possessed so enormously. Mm. I mean negative capability, that is, capable of being in uncertainties, mysteries, doubts, without any irritable reaching after fact and reason. Well, you see, the irritable itching after fact and, re and, and reason is the predominant contemporary virtue. People say, that's, that's not irritable. What's irritable about it? That's absolutely... Now, there are many contexts in which it's good to um, have this itch. You want to find out what actually happened in certain historical episodes. Did the Russians send in their little green men? They did, I think. Um, did this happen? Did that happen? Who did what? We have to find, find things out. What was Iraq like before the war? And what's it like now? There are facts. I'm not one of those people who say there aren't facts. There are facts. Um, what we make of the facts is often a different matter. So there are contexts in which... Um, um, we shouldn't, which we should, as it were, be itchy, that we should respond to the itch. But what we shouldn't, what I think is dangerous, is this is the sort of conclusion of the book, it's a kind of the thoughts, the book is a series of thoughts, it's not, there are arguments and, and facts and so on, it's not trying to, it's not a thesis that I is submitted to someone to pass a dissertation test. 
it's not a t it's not a holy text or a, or even a philosophical argument intended to convince anyone if you to adopt the view or the, in the book. It's a series of pensées thoughts, mm. and um, without any particular authority, you know you can read them. I hope you find them interesting. I hope they enrich your thinking. But you can take them or leave them in the end. But the 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 the, the thought at the end that I'm suggesting from this wonderful, wonderful letter by Keats is that to surrender to the need, the itch, um, to scratch oneself and produce a theory of history which says, I mean, most theories of history of the last um, uh, 200 years have been licenses for killing. <laughs> what they tell you is, yes, it's an unpleasant business to kill a lot of people, but, you know, if you kill enough in the right places in the right times, you'll produce perpetual peace. So don't be too downcast. Go in and do it. You're doing, if not God's work, history's work, man's work, human <laughs> humankind's work. Um, um, the demand for an explanation, the demand for an explanation, the whole of history, the demand for a theory of history, a theory of human development, a theory of human progress, um, uh, is uh, that kind of demand that um, I think Keats was, was referring to. And he's proposing a different way of um, responding to uh, our human predicament, which is to say um, it's better to be an uncertainty in mystery, to dwell in uncertainty in mystery, and know how very, very little you can know. Well, let me give you the most banal recent example I can think of of this. It's very banal and very insular, uh, but quite instructive. Um, until about um, 3.30 in the morning on Friday, ev pretty well everyone in England, in Britain, <laughs> believed all the polls and all that they'd said. I stayed up most of the night and watched that. I watched uh, leader after leader of parties say, um, I don't believe it. I don't believe it. I don't believe the exit. I just don't believe it. I'll eat my hat. By the way, they have eaten their hats, some of them since then. They've eaten hats made of marzipan. Um, I just don't believe it. We can't have 10 separate, quantitatively rigorous theories, analyses, polls. They can't all be wrong. They all were. Uh, do they all have the same methodological? They're done in different, slightly different ways. They're done by separate organizations. They can't all be wrong. Well, they were. They were all wrong, and substantially wrong, not just by a margin of error. Significantly and substantially wrong. The only one that was true was the exit poll, I got close. And that was rejected throughout the night until the results came in, and the results almost exactly corresponded to the exit poll. Now, that's kind of a very banal, local, uh, 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 British example. But I think it's instructive, which is that um, um, we know far less uh, than we think we do. And in particular, where there are complex techniques of quantitative and statistical analysis, social science, political science, we give us kind of vast theories about. Uh, there were theories that said uh, in 1917 that you'd have communism. There were also theories that said in 1989 that what would come out of Russia would be. Um, uh, I remember I, you know, talking to people around at the time. I wasn't I wasn't involved, but I, I knew lots of people who, who were involved. And some said Russia would turn into Sweden. <laughs> Others said no, no, it'd be more like Canada. It's bigger. Um, uh, still others said, well, it might not be exactly like Canada, or, but it might be you know, all utter nonsense from beginning to end. Um, it turned into something which practically no one expected. 
this strange kind of mixture of orthodoxy and nationalism, tyranny and surveillance, and, uh, and, and yet people are actually, many people are better off materially even now, and freer even now under, under the Putin regime than they were before. So it turned into something completely unexpected, completely different from any. Um, but no one admits to being surprised. Not a single person says, well, it doesn't really look like Sweden. It's not even like Canada, though it is bigger still. Um, uh, it's utterly, utterly, utterly different. Um, uh, you could still meet people now who say the same thing. China will turn into democracy just over time. Got to wait. Got to be. Got to be I mean, I mean, having seen us, they can hardly not imitate us. <laughs> having seen how rich and how progressive and how free and how happy we all are, surely they're all going to want to be us. That seems obvious, doesn't it? So in the in the long run, they'll all. Um, I don't know what will happen, but I'm pretty certain it isn't that. Um, uh, so I think um, negative capability means fully accepting our ignorance and our uncertainty, particularly in the areas where we can't know. We can know more, knowledge will grow in, and technology will expand. We'll know more about lots and lots of things. Uh, we'll know uh, uh, more about, um, we'll be able to have, do lots of things that we can't do now. But we won't have any extra knowledge about why we're here, mm -hmm. or why we live as we do live, or why we, we actually take what we think are the decisions we do, we, we do take. And so at the end of the book, what I say is, going back to this um, uh, story of Kleist's, um, is I say that um, the Gnostics, and Kleist in a way was playing with this Gnostic story, say that humans become, can become free to the extent that they become like gods or become like um, puppets floating above the earth. They know so much, they don't need to be tied down to the earth. But there's a different view of freedom you could have, which is that the freedom which humans can exercise is that which fits humans the way we are. And we live in uncertainty, we live in mystery, we live, in, um, we live with perpetual itches, which, however we scratch, don't go away. Um, so um, there's a different kind of freedom, which is in f the freedom of falling to earth, the freedom of accepting that we are what we appear to be, actually, which is um, mortal, frail, freshly, frequently deluded um, creatures. And if we accept that, maybe we can be a tiny bit freer than we've been lately. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I would like you to show your appreciation. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news and to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com.